and our Redeemer. Amen. And you may be seated. Let me invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Psalm chapter 100. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a hardcover black one underneath the chair in the row in front of you, and you can find Psalm 100 on page 500 of those Bibles. Now, with this being the first Sunday of Advent, you may have been expecting me to tell you to open up to one of the Gospels. You were probably expecting us to open up to some part of the Incarnation story and to start there, and and we'll get to that. Next week, Lord willing, Richard will walk us through uh, the Gospel of Matthew's account of the Incarnation. But for this morning, our, our text, I think, is actually a perfect bridge between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Psalm 100 is titled, A Psalm for Giving Thanks. And that title is original to the Hebrew text. And so this should really make us, uh, this, this, this psalm really is a perfect transition from the Thanksgiving holiday that we just celebrated. And in some pretty remarkable ways, it's going to point us forward towards the incarnation of Christ. So yes, this psalm is about giving thanks and worshiping the Lord for all that he's done. But it's also a psalm looking forward to what Christ would do. So it's a great bridge between Thanksgiving and the Advent season. Listen to how Martin Luther introduced this psalm in his commentary. He writes, This psalm is a prophecy concerning Christ. It calls upon all to rejoice, to triumph, and to give thanks, to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts and sanctuary with praise, because by the gospel and the preaching of the remission of sins, that kingdom of Christ is established and strengthened, which shall remain and stand forever. So as I read the text for us in just a few moments, I would encourage you to be looking for those themes. Look for the gospel and how this psalm points us forward to Christ. Let me now read for us Psalm chapter 100. This is the word of the Lord. Would you take heed how you listen? A psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. This is the word of the Lord. And it is absolutely true. And it's given to us in love for our good. Now, as we walk through Psalm 100 this morning, we're going to use three headings. First, enter his presence because he is God. Second, enter his presence because he is good. And last, enter his presence because of Christ. Let's look back at verse 1 together. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Now, you might be familiar with that phrase. We use it often as a call to worship in our worship services. This is an invitation for all of us to to come and make a joyful noise to the Lord, to to make a glad shout of praise. The Hebrew word for, for joyful noise literally means that. It means glad shout. In other words, the people of God should praise him gladly and loudly. It's a good thing to sing loud to the Lord. I want you to remember back to the beginning of the month. Uh, Where were you when the Houston Astros won the World Series? My wife, Nicole, and I were watching Game 6 in our living room couch. Uh, But outside, our backdoor neighbors, they have a nice outdoor patio with with an outdoor TV, and they're they're watching the game out there. 
And as the game progressed and it became more and more clear that the Astros might actually win this thing, they were letting out so many glad shouts of victory. And then when Kyle Tucker caught that foul ball on the first baseline, there was so much shouting next door. And then even beyond that, they had actually lined up fireworks. And so within like 30 seconds of that final out, my backdoor neighbors were lighting off a fireworks display that rivaled the 4th of July. Now I'm guessing most of you didn't light off fireworks that night, but many of us probably let out shouts of gladness over that victory. Here's the thing, if that's how our hearts respond to a game of baseball, how much more should our hearts respond joyfully when we consider the goodness of God? That's the sentiment behind verse 1. We are called to joyfully enter into God's presence each and every time we gather here for worship. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, Our happy God should be worshipped by a happy people. A cheerful spirit is in keeping with his nature, his acts, and the gratitude which we should cherish for his mercies. When we consider what it is the Lord has done for us, how can we not come into his presence gladly and joyfully? Verse 2 says, Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Now that phrase, serve the Lord, that carries with it the meaning of participating in a corporate worship service. That's actually where we get that phrase, worship service, from. It's from serving the Lord with gladness. That when we come into this this room, when we join our voices together and praise the Lord, it's a chance for us to serve him by worshiping him. Now, of course, when you serve elsewhere in the church or in other ministries that you're involved in, do that gladly. Do that joyfully. Be involved in other ministries. But in the context of verse 2, this is referring to what we're doing right now. When we gather for a worship service, we should do so with hearts full of gladness. And then we have this imperative verb telling us to come into his presence with singing. We ought to note two things about this part of the verse. First, In order to take part in a corporate worship service, you have to actually come. You have to actually show up week after week into this place. It's a sad reality that all the surveys are pointing to to American Christians who, who profess the name of Christ only show up to church in a little bit more than once a month on average. That ought not to be the case. We ought not to treat church like just another activity to squeeze into our calendar when there's nothing better to do on a Sunday. It ought to be the first priority that really governs the rest of our schedules. Pastor Richard Phillips comments this way, Too many Christians consider weekly worship in the church a mere option based on convenience. Something to be worked into our calendar when, with other competing activities. The Israelites saw worship much differently. It matters that you attend church weekly. This service matters to God. It matters to the church, and it matters to you. It is difficult to find a Christian who is growing in faith if the person is not regularly joined together with fellow believers for the worship service on the Lord's Day. And so the imperative from verse 2 is to come. To come as often as you can 
And of course, there are times when you're providentially hindered from being in worship, but that, that ought to be the exception. We ought to come regularly, come expecting to worship God, to be nourished by him and grown by him. The second thing we need to vote, note in verse 2 is that when we come into his presence, we are to do so with joyful singing. Now, you may not realize this, but Christianity is one of the only of the world's religions that encourages people to sing joyfully. Other religions may have chants and songs, and they have specially trained soloists and choirs who perform music, but it's a uniquely Christian thing for the people of God to lift our voices together and to sing loudly to the Lord. You know, when we gather for worship on the Lord's Day, the voices of the choir on stage should really join with the voices of the whole congregation together as we sing praises to the Lord. Think of it this way. When was the last time you went to a concert of your favorite artist? Perhaps you, you know, paid a little extra to get seats closer to the stage so you can get really close and, and hear the concert, and then maybe you've had this experience where you sit down in your seats, you're listening to the concert, and the person in the row behind you seems to be singing louder than the guy on stage. You had that experience? When you pay to go to a concert, that can be frustrating and annoying. But when we come to church, if the person behind you is singing loudly, join them. Join with their voices and sing loudly to the Lord. Friends, in, in a worship service context, someone singing loudly and off-key should not be an annoyance. It should be a cause for you to join and praise with them. Even those of you without any musical talent can sing joyfully and loudly to the Lord. I say this to our young people all the time, but it bears mentioning again. When we gather for worship, the people on this platform are not performing for you. They are not here for your entertainment. Instead, their aim is to give you the words to sing and the melody to sing it to. So that their voices and your voices join together as we praise God together. And notice the command to sing in verse 2. This, this doesn't change depending on what mood we happen to be in. You know, we may very likely show up for church in a sour mood with hardly any motivation in our hearts to sing and make a joyful noise to the Lord. And so what are we to do when that's the case? What are we to do when our hearts aren't joyful in the moment? I mean, verse 2 offers two imperatives. First, we still come. No matter how tired or busy or overwhelmed we might be feeling, we're still told to come into his presence. And second, we should still sing. Now think about the structure of so many of the other psalms that we have. So many of them are written during seasons of hardship and great anguish. And yet time and time again, their response is to praise God. Their response to all the turmoil in their life is to come into the courts of God and praise his name. This should be the same for us. Even when we're worn out, when we're weary, when we're heavy burdened, we should still come and we should still sing praises to God. It will do wonders for our hearts when we do this. I think we also need to remember who it is that our worship is directed towards. Look at verse 3. 
Know that the Lord, he is God. When we come into his presence, we would do well to remember who it is that we're actually worshiping. Our worship should be intelligible. It should be directed towards a God whom we actually know. I think it's a sad reality that so many people go through the motions of a worship service without actually knowing the God that they worship. I think even of this past Thursday, how many millions of people prayed a prayer of thanksgiving to a God they do not know? This ought not to be the case. We must know the God whom we are worshiping. And not just know facts about him, but know him personally. Trust him personally as your savior. That he really did die on the cross on your behalf. That he took the penalty of sin due unto you upon himself. That he took the wrath of God on himself and gives you his righteousness. Do you know this God? We can think here of Acts chapter 17, the story of Paul preaching in the Areopagus. You know, Paul had been walking around this Roman city of Athens and seeing all these idols and altars that were put up for all these different gods. And then it says this in Acts 17. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. You see, the people of Athens had tried to worship every God they could come up with in their brains. And just in case there was some God that they had forgotten about, they created this altar to an unknown God, sort of like an eternal insurance, insurance policy. But what Paul says is that the unknown God that the Athenians worshipped, he is actually the one true God. The rest of those idols and altars are false gods made by human hands. And so Paul begins to preach to them the real gospel. That there is one true God who has rescued and redeemed a people for himself. We cannot miss Paul's point here though. You've got to know the God that you worship. You've got to know him personally. and You've got to know him as your savior. And so I ask you again, do you know this God? Do you know him? The psalmist adds this to verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. Now our middle and high school students will tell you that one of the truths I try to press into them is this idea that because God is our creator, he alone gets to define us. To borrow the analogy from Romans 9, God is like a potter and we are like lumps of clay. He alone, as our creator, gets to define whatever that lump of clay will become. And while this is true of all of God's creation, it's especially true for those who've been made new creations in Christ. To put it another way, God is the creator and sustainer of all people everywhere. That's true. But for those who've been reborn, who've been given new hearts by Christ, we ought to have a unique appreciation for the fact that it is he who made us. And he alone gets to define who you are. 
This means that the world doesn't get to set how it is that you are defined. Your identity cannot be found in whatever the world's standard says it is. Your identity is not found in your latest 401k statement. Your identity is not found in whether or not you got into all the colleges you applied to. Your identity is not based on how well your children turned out or what your year-end review says about you. This also means that your identity can't come from within you. For the Christian, we will never find fulfillment and joy in our lives if we're just constantly trying to, quote-unquote, be true to yourself or to find your inner peace or any of these other catchphrases that are so common in our society. Remember, the clay doesn't get to decide what sort of vessel it becomes. The potter alone gets to define it. Therefore, for those who are in Christ, your identity is set and determined by your heavenly Father alone. It is he who made you. You are his. So what are you made for? I think the shorter catechism question one gives us such a clear and concise summary of what scripture teaches. That man's chief end, your chief purpose in life, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Your identity is found in glorifying God and enjoying him forever. That's it. You were made to glorify God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you are made to enjoy fellowship and union with the Lord forever. That's what you're made for. That's where your identity is found. Let's look at the rest of verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Now our minds should immediately hear echoes of Psalm 23 with that phrase, the sheep of his pasture. Psalm 23, this great psalm where David identifies himself as a sheep and that God is his shepherd who watches and protects over him. It's really likely that Psalm 100 was written after Psalm 23. So perhaps as the people of God were gathered together in the temple and singing Psalm 100, they may have heard echoes of Psalm 23 in their heads, reminding them of what it means that they are the sheep of his pasture. So here's what I want to do for a second. I want to remind you what Psalm 23 says. How Psalm 23 really expands what it means that we are his sheep. So let me just read for you Psalm 23 verses 1 through 4. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This is the picture of the God who is our shepherd. Think of all the benefits that we receive as his sheep. That we receive from the Lord's hand all that we need. Right? We shall not want. We lack nothing that we need. We receive Sabbath rest from the Lord. We receive restored souls and new hearts that, that trust and submit to God. 
We receive guidance on the path of holiness, meaning that the Lord guides us through his Holy Spirit and through his scriptures. And then even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we receive the comforting presence of the Lord who who goes before us and stands beside us. Through the rod, we receive protection from God's enemies. Through the staff, we receive loving correction when we've gone astray. Doesn't it just warm your soul to think of all that we have received as the sheep of God's pasture? The Lord, your creator and sustainer, is your shepherd. And he's done all of these things for you. And so when we remember all of this, when we remember that it's the Lord who is God, that he made us and watches over us and defines us, it it makes a sense why the psalmist tells us to sing praises to God. That really ought to be the reaction of our hearts. We really ought to enter these doors into the sanctuary week after week, ready to sing and praise the Lord, for he is worthy of the honor and glory. And so I urge you, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, when you come into this place, come with a mind to who it is that you get to worship. You get to enter his presence because he is God, and he's worthy of your praise. Let's move on to our second heading, enter his presence because he is good. In the next stanza, the the psalmist is going to remind us of the character of God and why you and I have specific cause to worship the God because of his goodness in particular. Look at verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Now the use of gates and courts is speaking of the Old Testament temple, meaning that Old Testament location where the believers were supposed to enter into that place of worship and they were supposed to do so with glad and thankful hearts. Charles Spurgeon again comments, so long as we are receivers of mercy, we must be givers of thanks. That was true for the Israelites, and that ought to be true for us as well. That when we come into worship, our hearts should overflow with thankfulness towards God. And as has been the case throughout this psalm, the verbs in verse 4 are plural, which means this is for all of us. Together, we are to be thankful to God. And so I think this brings up a little bit of a point of application. I think we're really quick to share prayer requests with other people. In fact, we we ought to do that more. We ought to be more willing to share our needs and ask others to be praying for us. But I think one area where we lack is sharing our praises, sharing how it is that we're thankful to the Lord for what he's done for us. Psalm 107 says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. If we've been redeemed, if the Lord has done any work of his goodness in our life, we ought to say so. So I want to encourage you, the next time that you're in a setting where you might be sharing prayer requests, whether it's your your city group or a Sunday school class or some other venue, if there's a chance to share prayer requests, share your praises as well. Let the other believers in that group be encouraged at how the Lord has been faithful and working in your life. Now this brings us to verse 5, which gives us our why. Why are we to make a joyful noise? Why are we to sing loudly to the Lord? Why are we to offer thanksgiving and praise to his name? Verse 5 tells us, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. 
and his faithfulness to all generations. So why are we to do all these things? I think there's three reasons highlighted in verse 5. The first is this. The Lord is good. The Lord alone is good. Consider for a second all those false idols that the Athenians were worshiping. They weren't good at all. They were self-serving, unable to help, and really just figurines created by human hands. But the Lord, the God of the Bible, is always good to his people. As one writer commented, the goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of good toward, goodwill toward men. He is tender-hearted and of quick sympathy, and his unfailing attitude towards all moral beings is open, frank, and friendly. By his nature, he is inclined to bestow blessedness, and he takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his people. We should be quick to offer thanksgiving to God because of his goodness. The second reason we're given here is because of his steadfast love. Right? His steadfast love endures forever. The Hebrew word there is the word hesed. This word which is used to describe God's everlasting and covenant faithfulness towards his people. And this word really highlights the mercy that God has shown to us time and time and time again. Despite our rebellion, despite our tendency to run away from God and disobey him, he constantly, faithfully, and consistently shows mercy to us. This is hesed love that God has for us. I think it's sometimes hard for us to comprehend this idea of God's love for us. And that's due in large part to the fact that most of the love that we see highlighted in our culture, it, it's really selfish love. It's rooted in, in temporary feelings. You know, just think of how many celebrity marriages have been celebrated in the tabloids only to fall apart a few months later. That's the love that's so often highlighted and praised in our culture. It's in flux. It's never stable. It's always changing. But the Hesed love of God is not this way. God's love towards his people does not waver. It does not change depending on how God's feeling. It's not as though God could ever wake up on the wrong side of the bed and start treating his people totally differently. God's love is not conditional. It does not change based on your behaviors and actions. Rather, God's love is perfectly steadfast. Scripture promises that he does not leave you nor forsake you, and he never, ever will. For the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. The third reason why we are to give thanks and praise to God from verse 5 is because of his faithfulness to all generations. Note, the way, note, note for a second the way that the psalmist pairs forever with generations. This is telling us that God's goodness and his faithfulness extends forever. We could never even imagine trying to measure his goodness and his steadfast love towards us. John Calvin says it this way, We can never be at a loss for constant cause of praising him. 
His love and his goodness and his faithfulness endures forever. And he really is worthy of our praise. You know, when we consider all that God has done for us, all the blessings, provision, and correction that our Lord does for us, we really ought to be driven to constant praise of him. We really should come into this room, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, with hearts ready to praise him because he is God and because he is good. We've got to remember that all of this is only possible because of what Christ has done on our behalf. So we come now to our final heading, enter his presence because of Christ. You see, you and I as believers today in 2022, we can enter God's presence only because of Christ's work on our behalf. Let me remind you of the quote that I said earlier from Martin Luther. This psalm, Psalm 100, is a prophecy concerning Christ. It calls upon all to rejoice, to triumph, and to give thanks, to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts and sanctuary with praise, because by the gospel and the preaching of the remission of sins, that kingdom of Christ is established and strengthened, which shall remain and stand forever. This whole psalm really is pointing us forward to what Christ would do in his life, death, and resurrection. Let me highlight just three ways we see Christ in Psalm 100. First, because of Christ, we can enter into the inner courts. Remember verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. The Old Testament temple was constructed in such a way where you had these outer courts, you know, surrounded by a wall, and to get through that wall, you'd have to enter in by a gate. And then you'd be in these outer courts where, you know, the majority of the sacrifices were made. And the majority of the people were welcome to come into that place for worship. But as you got closer and closer to the center of the temple, the attendance got more and more restricted. As you got nearer and nearer to the place where God's presence dwelled most fully, the number of people allowed in was smaller and smaller until only the high priest was able to enter the Holy of Holies and he could only go in once a year. I want you to hear for a second how the author of Hebrews describes the Holy of Holies, this most central place of the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was. It says this in Hebrews 9, These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. And so you see, in the old covenant days, the Holy of Holies was closed off to almost all the people. This was the case when Psalm 100 was written and sung by God's people. They were only welcomed into the outer courts for worship. But now consider for a moment what it is that Christ has done for us. That he's torn down the barriers that separated us from God's presence and we are able to enter into the most holy places in a spiritual way. When Christ died on the cross, the Gospel of Mark records this for us. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
You see, when Christ died, the curtain separating the people from the Holy of Holies was entirely opened wide. And this means that you and I get to enter into God's presence. And it's only because of God's, because of Christ's work for us, that we can draw near to the throne of grace. Earlier in the book of Hebrews, it says this in chapter 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Remember that the high priest in the old covenant days made atonement for his own sins and the sins of the people. Christ's sacrifice on the cross, he was sinless. He offered sacrifice for your sins. In verse 16, let us then, in response to this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because of Christ, we can enter into the inner courts of our Lord. We can enter into his presence and find the grace and mercy that we need for life. And it's only because of Christ, our mediator, the great high priest, that any of this is possible. Okay, the second way this psalm is pointing us to Christ is this, that because of Christ, all are invited in. Verse 1 opens up with, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Remember for a second, this was sung by the Israelites in temple worship. And yet, in the first verse, the whole earth is invited. John Calvin comments this, And since he invites the whole of the inhabitants of the earth indiscriminately to praise Jehovah, he seems in the spirit of prophecy to refer to the period of the church, or sorry, when the church would be gathered out of the different nations. See, Psalm 100, in calling the, all of the earth to praise God, it is really looking forward to the day when Christ would come and when the gospel would go forth to the Gentiles, to the nations, to all of God's people everywhere. Because of Christ's work on the cross, we know that the gospel has gone forth and is continuing to go forth to all the nations. That people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are welcomed into worship because of what Christ has done. It's only because of Christ that we're invited in. And thirdly, because of Christ, we are sheep with a good shepherd. And we've already noted how verse 3 identifies us as, as the sheep of God's pasture. And that connection with Psalm 23. We need to see the connection to Christ. Do you remember how Jesus identifies himself in John chapter 10? He says, For I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Not only are we the sheep of God's pasture, we have a good, good shepherd. A shepherd who provides for us, who cares for us, who protects us and corrects us. And as the rest of verse 15 in John 10 says, we have a good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. We are the sheep of his pasture, not just because he made us and defines us, but because he sacrificed himself for us. 
Christ, our good shepherd, sacrificed himself on the cross for the sake of the sheep. He came on that very first Christmas morning and humbled himself by being born of a virgin in a stable. And then he lived the perfect life that you and I have failed to live in every regard. He never once sinned. He never once rebelled against the Lord. He earned perfect righteousness. and He still stood in our place on the cross. He died for the penalty of all of our sins, and he's made a way for us to be righteous in God's eyes. He is the good shepherd who has laid down his life for the sheep and has welcomed us into his presence so that we can sing and magnify and honor the Lord in all that we say and think and do. So dear Christian, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, when you come into this place, Remember what a privilege it is to come. To come and make a joyful noise to the Lord. May we never forget that. May we remember each and every Lord's Day when we come, that we get to come because of what Christ has done. And we get to praise him for all that he's done for generations past and generations to come. And for all of his faithfulness towards us, his people. So I remind you again, come into his presence with thanksgiving and enter his courts with praise each and every Lord's Day. Let's come. Let's come with thankful hearts ready to praise our Lord together. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we praise and magnify your name. We make a joyful noise to you, O Lord. It is our aim to serve you with gladness. For we know that you are the Lord and you are God. You made us. We are yours. We are your people and the sheep of your pasture. And so, Lord, we ask for your help. Please draw us into your gates with thanksgiving and into your courts with praise. Help us to be thankful to you for all that you've done. For you are good. And your steadfast love endures forever, and your faithfulness endures to all generations. Amen.